You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. As a nation, we have an important question to answer. How much do we really know our own heritage? Was America founded by a group of old white men? Or has our story always been diverse? Were we able to deal with the injustices of our past through malice and vengeance? Or did we strive towards a higher ideal? Was the United States founded upon oppression and injustice, advancing one people at the expense of another? Or did the founders actually mean what they said when they wrote that all men are created equal? Most importantly, will we continue to build a nation on a false narrative? Or is it finally time that we realize that the story of America is the story of all of us? As time has passed, America has faced many trials and hardships over the years. We have constantly strived to overcome our faults and failures. It is that effort to overcome that defines us, not the mistakes that we have made. Our heritage is one of an expansive liberty, not a crushing oppression. These are the stories of those who fulfilled the promise of America. Their legacy is our heritage. The only question is, will we live up to it? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson wrote these immortal words in the summer of 1776 with some editorial assistance from John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. Jefferson understood that our rights come from our humanity as free-willed people, so long as we weren't harming others along the way, it is inherent in each of us to chart our own path according to the dictates of our own conscience. Because of this, he understood that the right to conscience, that is to say, the right of an individual to uphold what it is that they determine to be true without the threat of force of governing authorities, is the most sacred right to possess. It's the right from which all other rights stem. Of course, while Jefferson embedded this understanding into the heart of the American identity, he was hardly the first to arrive at such a conclusion. 
He studied the great thinkers of the Enlightenment, most notably the philosophies of John Locke. The Declaration of Independence merely echoes much of what Locke insisted to be true many decades earlier. Yet even before John Locke was born, the concept that mankind had a right to the dictates of their own conscience was already beginning to take root in America. The first colony in New England, founded by the Pilgrims in Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620, was established out of much of the same belief. The Plymouth colony came to discover the value of liberal society not long after their foundation, but matters were much different in the neighboring Massachusetts Bay Colony. By the 1630s, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was becoming the predominant colony in New England, as a group known as the Puritans flooded the area. In contrast to the society that the Pilgrims established, centered around reason, property rights, and toleration, the Puritans built their colony around fear, superstition, and obedience. There was no room for dissenters, especially religious dissenters, in Puritan society. It didn't matter how much one loved or prayed to God if it was done in the way that the Puritans deemed unacceptable. These were the circumstances that a woman named Anne Hutchinson found herself in. America's first true foremother. Anne Hutchinson was seemingly destined to buck the status quo from well before she was even born. In 1578, Anne's soon-to-be father, Francis Marbury, was tried for heresy against the Church of England. His so-called crime was speaking out critically against church practices. Neither Francis nor his soon-to-be daughter Anne were secular individuals, quite the opposite. It was precisely because of their devout faith that they were provoked to step up and speak out. This was a critical time, not just in church history, but in the history of liberty. Martin Luther sparked the Protestant Reformation in Europe just a little over a half a century earlier. By this point, all of Europe was sectioned off into religious sects. The age of religious subjugation that defined the Middle Ages was officially at an end. The only possible option at this point for those in authority was religious toleration. As it turned out, this would eventually be the case, but not without plenty of conflict and persecution along the way. Those like Francis, who separated from church practices, largely did so to honor their creator in a way that their conscience dictated as right and just. To them, it was the church that had perverted God's word. Their rejection of conventional church practices sought to restore honor to their creator not to mock him. Ahead of the trial, the young Francis Marbury had insisted in his preaching and talks that the church had been appointing ineffective and uneducated men to the clergy and that this had been harming the integrity of the church. This being during the Reformation, church leaders were particularly sensitive to criticism. After being arrested in 1578, Francis was brought to trial, where he was accused by the Bishop of London, John Almer, saying to him that, quote, you had rattled the Bishop of Peterborough. From there, Francis condemned the church for their inadequate teaching of scripture, warning that the guilt of the souls of those lost due to the poor teachings of the bishop was on his hands. Almer then replied, quote, Thou takest upon thee to be a preacher, but there is nothing in thee. Thou art a very ass, an idiot, and a fool. With that, the young 23-year-old preacher Francis Marbury was sentenced to two years of imprisonment. After the church deemed him adequately reformed and released him from his imprisonment, 
he was now permitted to preach again, this time in Lincolnshire. Over the next decade, he married his first wife, Elizabeth Moore, but she died in 1586 after bearing three children. After a year and a half, he married his second wife, Bridget Dryden. It was shortly after his second marriage that Francis once again let his convictions dominate his teachings, leading to him coming into the crosshairs of the church. Like in 1578, he felt as if the church were promoting ineffective representatives of God's word, and something needed to change. The Bishop of Lincoln was not having it and he revoked his license to preach in 1590. He was also placed on house arrest for three years. Yet, despite all of these desolate events, the turn of the decade brought him a few fortunes as well. In 1591, his latest daughter, Anne Marbury, was born in Lincolnshire, England, while her father was still under house arrest. As it would turn out, she was going to challenge the authority of her day to even a greater degree than what her father could have even imagined. From an early age, Francis taught his daughter Anne to be a godly yet independent woman determined to do what was right rather than what was accepted. He continued to disregard cultural norms, only rather than doing so publicly, he was also doing so in his own home life. Convinced that the church needed well-educated leaders to promote the gospel and to grow throughout the earth, Francis taught his daughter Anne to read and to write from an early age. He may have been largely regarded as a Puritan, but this is just one example of how he didn't really neatly fit into any given ideological box. He held to what he believed was right, no matter who it aligned him with, a trait Anne would also pick up. This is perhaps showcased best in his insistence to provide his daughter with proper education. The Protestant Puritans were political and religious nonconformists who had a very rigid and specific interpretation of the Bible. This meant that when they believed the church was out of line with God's teachings, they would align themselves with their creator rather than any earthly vessel. However, it also meant they had very little toleration for anyone who wavered from this very strict interpretation within their own ranks. Francis's interest to educate his daughter so that she could also spread the gospel ran contrary to many Puritan beliefs. To them, women were meant to submit, not instruct. Yet again, even in this somewhat minor way, Francis Marbury was blazing his own trail, not following someone else's. In 1605, Francis, Anne, and the rest of their family moved to London to preach in the city with the blessing of the Bishop of London. Things were looking up for the Marbury family. In fact, just a few years earlier, this religious nonconformist found himself being honored to preach a sermon on the ascension of James I to King of England. This sermon, and many others of his around this time, were beginning to find their way in print in England. Of course, the unwavering conviction of Francis started having a profound influence on Anne during the pivotal years of her upbringing. Unfortunately, this era of fortune would soon come to an abrupt end for the Marbury family. In February 1611, Francis Marbury died suddenly at the age of 55. One of the cruel realities of life at this time was that nobody was promised a tomorrow. Even 55 was a higher-than-average life expectancy at the time, which was about 40 years old for the common man. Still, this didn't make the death of her father any easier for Anne. 
One thing that did manage to help lift her spirits was her budding romantic relationship with a childhood friend named William Hutchinson. William was about five years older than Anne, but shared a similar upbringing in Lincolnshire. William became a cloth merchant in London, and with his renewed friendship and more recent romantic inclinations toward Anne, the two married in August of 1612. They immediately began producing a family together, and William became a rather successful businessman in his own right. They returned to their hometown of Alford in Lincolnshire to raise their family together. As they grew in their family life, they also grew together in their spiritual life. A major reason for this was their church attendance at St. Botoph's Church in Boston, England, about 21 miles from Alford. Here, they were absorbed in the teachings and preachings of the Puritan minister, John Cotton. Anne was particularly captivated by Cotton's preachings, who taught that God's mercy rather than his vengeance is his default attitude. Judgment is only brought about by our earthly actions and not predetermined before our birth. Anne may have related to John Cotton also because his attitudes were not that unsimilar to her father's. Like Francis Marbury, John Cotton was devoutly adherent to what he believed to be the true interpretation of scripture, and that the church was misleading people. As a follower of Cotton's teachings, Anne started to bring together women for a scripture study group. Despite the Puritan belief that women should not be teaching, Cotton could recognize Anne's effectiveness as a communicator. He gave her his blessing to do so because he believed Anne could help bring more women into church in a way that the average man could not. This not only propelled Anne to find her voice, but it also made her that much more determined of her own convictions. Yet both Anne Hutchinson and John Cotton would have to tread with caution in the world that they found themselves in. This was still during the Reformation, after all, and this era of history was boiling over into continual conflict. The acceptable interpretation of God's word changed as quickly as the death of a king. Nothing was truly stable, and what was acceptable or permissible one day may become heresy the next. Even though the Church of England was Protestant, that didn't mean it tolerated all degrees of Protestantism. Any denomination that questioned the authority of the church was simultaneously a threat to the legitimacy of the authority of the king. No more was this true than with the death of King James I and the subsequent ascension of King Charles I to the throne in 1625. King Charles I claiming the throne made life incredibly difficult for religious minorities, more so than ever before. Puritan preaching sought to literally purify the church, change it from within, that put them in the crosshairs of those in established authority. As John Cotton's name and notoriety rose, he became one of the individuals in the crosshairs of that established power. Much like with Anne's father, Francis, John's call for church reform brought about the ire of many clergymen. As push come to shove, John Cotton was questioned by the Court of High Commissions over concern that his rhetoric would cause dissent in England. Cotton bent to the pressure, and as the 1620s turned into the 1630s, he went into hiding to avoid any accusation of heresy. It was becoming obvious that under the rule of King Charles that toleration would never be an option, but neither would be remaining silent. If they wished to worship according to their own conscience without the threat of persecution, they would have to flee to somewhere where they could do so freely. 
The Puritans soon realized that a similar group of religious dissenters had already blazed the trail for them, but that trail would be anything but easy. In 1620, a group that was known as the Separatists, later referred to as the Pilgrims, similarly fled religious persecution in Europe to set up a colony in the New World. The Separatists were different from the Puritans in many fundamental ways, however. For instance, as their name implies, they had no intentions or interests of purifying the church, but separating from it entirely. While they had devout faith, they largely believed that one's faith had to be voluntary in order for it to be true. As such, religious toleration was the only acceptable approach to individuals with differing beliefs, a striking contrast to the conflicts to assert religious dominance that had come to define their era in Europe. Additionally, unlike the Puritans, these separatists were largely poor, but found the New World the land of opportunities. Nonetheless, the Puritans found the example of these separatists fleeing to the New World appealing, not only could they flee persecution, but there was in the eyes of an even greater opportunity to do that which the pilgrims did not. In America, they could truly purify the church in the way that they had always envisioned. Being separated from the king by an ocean would allow the Puritans to build what they envisioned to be God's kingdom on earth, a shining city upon a hill. Starting in 1630, Puritans fled in droves to reach Massachusetts and established the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The first wave of Puritans included the likes of John Winthrop, the future governor of the colony. It did not yet include John Cotton, however, nor did it include Anne and William Hutchinson. It would be another three years before Cotton finally fled to the New World, and still another year after that before the Hutchinsons did so finally in 1634. However, if Anne thought that following her hero, John Cotton, into the New World would preserve her from the threat of persecution, she would be sorely mistaken. Her time in the Massachusetts Bay Colony would begin to test her faith and resolve in ways that she'd never experienced before, and it is through this great personal trial that she established herself as one of the first true American originals in defense of all people's right to consciousness. Anne and William Hutchinson traveled to America in 1634. Anne was 43 years old, and they brought their 10 children to flee religious persecution in England in favor of the hope of establishing, quote, that shining city upon a hill in Massachusetts. They arrived in Boston, aptly named after the town that John Cotton once preached in in England, and started to build a new life for themselves. It wasn't long before William rose to prominence in Boston. He served as a magistrate while Anne nursed the ill to health and assisted with child care. She also reconnected with John Cotton shortly after arriving. 
She was determined to continue the important mission that she carried out so well in England now that she was in the New World. John Cotton also saw value in this and kept Anne and kept Anne close to him as he proceeded to establish his own authority as a church leader, building up the congregational structure that had defined Puritan worship. In the beginning, this relationship had largely been carried out as it had in England. John Cotton would lead worship and preach the interpretation of the gospel that he found to be true, and would host study sessions with people in the colony, particularly women, to help spread John's message and to bring more people to his sermons. However, as Anne continued to grow in her faith and her understanding of the word of God, something began to change. Anne started to have a different view of the gospel. And that meant big trouble for those in authority who sought to make the most pure version of the Church of England in America. As she worked throughout the colony, organizing groups in the way that she did in England, she came to believe that much of the Puritan practice put too much emphasis on trying to police human behavior rather than having a personal and intimate relationship with their creator. Of course, that isn't to say that she believed humanity should go wild in all things, it did mean, however, that rather than trying to ensure someone was living perfectly by a strict set of rules, they should instead live their life with peace and love for their fellow man and allow the Almighty to forgive any transgressions that they may have committed. It likely is not lost upon the listener that this sounds like the natural progression of that which John Cotton preached earlier in his life in England. The very same message of mercy that drew Anne to Cotton in the first place was now something that she was forcefully preaching to all those willing to listen. This message was incredibly appealing to the inhabitants of Massachusetts. Now, rather than pointing people in the direction of Cotton, she was serving as the main attraction. And this went well beyond a female audience. Men were also coming to the study groups, sermons, and lectures in order to hear the incredible Anne Hutchinson speak. Through her preaching, they were coming to accept Anne's doctrine as a very accurate and measured assessment of the gospel, one which many had not considered before. As many as 80 people per meeting were attending her sermons, which took place roughly twice a week. This was virtually unheard of for a woman to carry such an authoritative presence in her preaching to so many people. Even the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Henry Vane, started to come to hear her preach. Anne's doctrine was spreading across the colony like wildfire. And much like her father before her, this put her in direct opposition with the established order and the very person she once looked up to for inspiration, John Cotton. As Cotton watched Anne's popularity grow, he quickly realized that the very person he was using as an asset was now threatening his authority and credibility. Ironically, he had no problem holding the clergy establishment in England to a higher standard when he believed they were leading people astray. This time, however, he was the one in authority, and to him, his authority was paired with the belief that he alone preached the correct interpretation of the gospel. Thus... Any dissent could undermine not just the stability of the colony, but the entire mission of purifying the church. That wasn't something that Cotton was willing to risk, and he wasn't alone. John Winthrop, a Puritan minister who arrived early in the mass exodus to Massachusetts, was a very influential person in the colony, having already served as their second governor by this point. He championed a rigid and legalistic view of the Bible. In contrast to Anne's views, 
Winthrop's legalism espoused that salvation through Christ is no excuse to abandon the Mosaic law outright. Rather, one's salvation was demonstrated by strict adherence to it. If someone was truly saved by grace, they would want to follow the law, to the letter, all of it. Of course, as a woman of devout faith, Anne was not suggesting that one should reject the law outright, but merely that adherence to the law is not a precondition for one's salvation. The opposing views of scripture cause a rift in the colonies, with John Winthrop and John Cotton on one side of the debate and Anne Hutchinson on the other. In 1637, Winthrop was once again elected as governor, now the colony's sixth. With Winthrop back in the seat of authority, he realized it was time to put an end to Anne and her influence for good. He was determined that the mission to purify the church would succeed if he had anything to say about it, and that meant pushing out the major dissenting voice in the colony. Winthrop and Cotton had sent female spies to eavesdrop on Anne's sermons and report back to them. It did not stop at espionage, however. As momentum continued to build against Anne after Winthrop's re-election, several resolutions were passed that were designed to snuff out any religious dissent specifically against Anne herself. One resolution even made it illegal to have meetings in Anne's home. No matter, Anne continued in her preaching anyway. It's a tale as old as time. When two people or groups are in opposition to one another, the one with more power naturally aims to use the force of the state to stomp out resistance. Having enough to wage against her now, she was accused of heresy and was called to appear before the general court over her preaching. As she appeared in court, Anne was again pregnant, but neither this nor anything else prevented her from standing up for her convictions. Winthrop resided over the court, hardly a fair trial. As the trial began, Winthrop gaveled everyone to order. Mistress Hutchinson, you are called here as one of those who have troubled the peace of the commonwealth and the churches here. You have spoken diverse things, prejudicial to the honor of the churches and ministers, and you have maintained a meeting or general assembly in your house that hath been condemned by the general assembly as a thing not tolerable or comely in the sight of your God, nor fitting for your sex. To make matters worse, John Cotton himself testified against her. This surely pained Anne. Her one-time hero and mentor is now the very figure lashing her with vicious verbal attacks, slandering her intellect as well as her character. He characterized her meetings as a, quote, promiscuous and filthy coming together of men and women. They continued to lobby against her, but Anne Hutchinson was not about to let these men walk over her too easily. Anne first inquired about the specific so-called crime to which she was being brought to the court. Quote, I am called here to answer before you, but I hear no things laid to my charge. To this, Winthrop replied, quote, I have told you some already, and more I can tell you. He then proceeded to lecture Anne about who was actually the one on trial here. Quote, we are your judges and not you ours. To this, Anne challenged Winthrop's biblical authority to which he lays claim, stating, quote, if you have a rule for it from God's word, you may. Perhaps Winthrop's hubris caused him to underestimate his opponent on trial. It's easy to see why. Winthrop was in the ultimate position of power. 
both literally and metaphorically. But Hutchinson was not to be walked over. She was to be intellectually sparred with caution. The two of them then engaged in a battle of knowledge and wits, literally, of biblical proportion. For every verse one pulled from scripture to back their case, the other one had one in their arsenal to refute it. Seeing as they could not one-up each other on their knowledge of scripture, and shifted to a standard of consistency. Do you think it not lawful of me to teach men? And why do you call on me to teach the court? And begged the governor, to which he sharply replied, quote, We do not call upon you to teach the court, but to lay yourself open. No matter if Winthrop was willing to concede her point, the point had been made. If Anne could not be trusted on the basis of her sex to make the logical conclusions necessary to interpret the Bible properly, then how could she be reasonably expected to defend herself on trial? Using Winthrop's own reasoning, wouldn't she be naturally in a state of disadvantage? By calling on her in the first place to defend herself, he is conceding her own intellectual abilities and capacity to reason efficiently. Not long after this back and forth, Winthrop was forced to concede this point himself. Yes, he said, you are a woman of most note and of best abilities. The trial lasted for two days, and all things considered went fairly well for Anne. That is, it went well until the end, when she lectured the court and sealed her fate. This is not to say that she would have gotten off clean. She was put at a disadvantage from the beginning, and it would literally take an act of God to alter the fact that the outcome would have resulted in some form of punishment. Perhaps she got tired of trying to explain herself over something she saw as self-evident. Or, perhaps, more likely, she realized that this kind of persecution was never going to end unless she did the unthinkable and refused to stay silent on the things that she knew to be true. Either way, toward the end of the trial, she had had enough and tore into the court. Hutchinson began by explaining that God gave her a vision, telling her that she, quote, must come to New England, yet I must not fear or be dismayed. But as she continued to retrace her steps, she gave a grave indictment of the Puritans, telling them that, quote, The Lord did give me to see that those who did not teach the new covenant had the spirit of the Antichrist. To the court, not only was this heresy, but it was possibly witchcraft. They believed that God would not give visions to Anne in such a way because he only did that to men. For a woman such as her to receive such a message, it must have come from the devil. Deputy Governor Dudley, who assisted in the prosecution of Hutchinson, said as much, stating, quote, I am now fully persuaded that Miss Hutchinson is deluded by the devil. But Anne wasn't finished. As she concluded her closing remarks, she ominously warned that, quote, if you go on in this court in which you began, you will bring a curse upon you and your posterity, and the mouth of the Lord hath spoken. For the court, Anne's audacity and heresy were too much for them to bear. It was also confirmation of everything that they had feared. Quote, this had been the thing that had been the root of all the mischief, John Winthrop belted as he shook his finger at her. Anne was far too dangerous to have her stay in the colony. 
so they did what they believed the only reasonable course of action. After a vote was taken on her sentencing, Winthrop read the ruling. Miss Hutchinson, the sentence of the court you hear is that you are banished from out of our jurisdiction as being a woman not fit for our society, and are to be imprisoned until the court shall send you away. After hearing the heavy news, Anne inquired to know where she was being banished, to which Winthrop refused to answer, but instead barked back, Say no more. The court knows wherefore, and is satisfied. Anne Hutchinson was imprisoned under house arrest throughout the winter until the spring of 1638. From there, she, her husband, and 30 of her supporters left the Massachusetts Bay Colony for good. Continuing their search for religious tolerance, they simply traded English persecution for Puritan persecution. They resolved to not allow this to happen again. Thus, they sought refuge in a location where liberty could truly flourish. Roger Williams, another banished member of Puritan society, was kicked out just a few years earlier under similar charges of heresy. He went on to establish the Providence Plantation, which would soon grow into what we know today as Rhode Island. This was a liberalized colony that more closely resembled the Pilgrim's Colony in Plymouth rather than the authoritative colony that was run by the Puritans in the Massachusetts Bay. Anne, William, and her supporters migrated to Rhode Island to meet Roger Williams and establish the city of Portsmouth. Like in Boston, Anne and William experienced a degree of success at first. William also here became the chief magistrate of Portsmouth, similar to how he served in office in Massachusetts. But it wasn't long until hardship again struck. Anne's pregnancy tragically ended in a stillbirth. Not only this but it came out terribly deformed. Despite banishing her, the Puritans and positions of influence continued to keep tabs on Anne well after she left the colony. John Winthrop heard of Anne's stillbirth and immediately went to preach about how this was a punishment sent from God because of her wicked ways in attempting to lead the colony astray. The character assassination only got worse from there. Many ministers in the colony started to create horrible rumors that when Anne was working as a nurse, she never delivered a normal baby. These children were all deformed with demon-like claws. The only logical conclusion from this was that she delivered demon children due to her influence from Satan, as they supposedly discovered during her testimony. Anne's misfortune continued as she entered into the 1640s. In 1642, her beloved and supported husband, William Hutchinson, died at age 55, the same age as her father, Francis, when he died years earlier. This naturally devastated Anne. But her mourning was again interrupted by the foot soldiers of John Winthrop, who dispatched ministers to Rhode Island in an attempt to get Anne to give up her beliefs because, as they tried to convince her, Massachusetts would soon absorb Rhode Island. Absorption or not, Anne Hutchinson was tired of Winthrop's obsessive meddling and decided to press even further south to New Amsterdam, or modern-day New York. She felt safer there and happier, far out of sight from the puritanical Massachusetts Bay. However, this was very much a false sense of security. Anne and her children settled in the Dutch colony right around the time tensions were rising between the settlers and the local Indian tribes. Those tensions eventually broke in a terrible series of instances known as the Wappinger War. During one bright summer afternoon, 
a small group of Indians rampaged through the settlement that Anne and her children established themselves. With the exception of nine-year-old Susan, Anne and all of her children were brutally massacred on that hot August day in 1643. John Winthrop soon heard of Anne's demise at the hands of the local warring Indians and rejoiced. He was never quite able to get over the boldness of her descent during her years in Massachusetts and held a special resentment for her in his heart well after she died. He continued to bemoan her character post-mortem. In one essay that he wrote, he infamously dubbed her an American Jezebel. As for her daughter, Susan, who survived the Indian attack, she was kidnapped shortly after by a tribe of Indians. The chief of the tribe adopted her as his daughter and changed his name to Anne Hook in honor of Susan's mother. She stayed with the tribe for the rest of her childhood. Then, after another nine years, she returned to the very location that chased away her mother, Boston. She married a settler there and remained in Massachusetts for many years. Anne must have wondered to herself what God's greater plan for her was during all of her trials and tribulations. By no means did she get everything she deserved out of life. She stood up for what she believed to be true, and because of that, the governing authorities on two continents sought out to ruin her life over it. She knew the hardship that her father went through because he stuck to his convictions. And rather than choosing to live an easy life for herself by simply submitting, she instead chose to follow in his footsteps. Anne was threatened with censorship, banishment, imprisonment, defamation, and eventually death. Yet none of this deterred her from defending her right to her own conscience. Although to her, she was simply following her lord the best that she could. As she was about to leave the Massachusetts Bay Colony, she uttered some parting words, stating that, quote, it is better to be cast out of the church than to deny Christ. Anne Hutchinson would never fully know the impact of her actions during her time in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Neither would her children, nor would her grandchildren. Today, however, we can look back at the bravery and the conviction of Anne Hutchinson as one of the first major acts of civil disobedience on American soil. Because of this, her story was embedded into the fabric of the American identity. And now, we enjoy the blessings of liberty that, at least in part, Anne Hutchinson risked her life, fortune, and sacred honor to ensure. The benefit of defending liberty is not always an obvious one. In fact, you may never see it, but we enjoy greater freedom today because someone before us wasn't afraid to risk it all. Liberty is not for the faint-hearted. It cannot be maintained with cowardice. Liberty is for the bold. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to this week's edition of Profiles in Liberty. Uh, I must say that this was probably one of the most surprising stories that I, I had the pleasure of writing down uh, about the life of Anne Hutchinson. Uh, Anne Hutchinson was an incredible figure that I found uh, particularly inspiring in this season, and I hope that you found her to be as inspiring as well. Next week, we are going to be wrapping up season two, The Equalizers, featuring Mercy Otis Warren. If you are unfamiliar with Mercy Otis Warren, um, this person is a true titan. Uh, and she is someone who was truly unafraid during the American Revolution 
and someone who was truly unafraid all the way up leading up until her eventual death challenging authority every step of the way and i cannot wait to bring her story to you so please be sure to tune in next week for our season two finale season two the equalizers of profiles in liberty until then you can of course follow me at caleb franz on twitter you can follow we are libertarians on twitter at we the letter r libertarians please be sure to give us a rating a five-star rating and a review let us know how much you love the show it really does help and then be sure to spread the show as far as you possibly can so that way you can help share the stories of liberty this has been caleb franz with profiles and liberty